Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me this morning to the last narrative of Luke 2. We began our exposition of Luke a few months back. And we have the privilege of finishing another chapter this morning, but we're still early in the study. Our text this morning is Luke chapter 2. Begin reading with me at verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Join me in prayer. Lord, this is Your holy word, Your word of life. And we simply ask now that You, by the power of Your Spirit in us and in this place, Lord, that You would set our hearts on Christ. That as we consider this passage, the only passage, Lord, dealing with His early life, that You would help us to see, Lord, the wonder of Your grace at work in Him, revealing and preparing Him even then to be the Savior of all men. We thank You, Father, for Your grace now in guiding our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think all of us who have perhaps been parents have probably faced the terror of losing a child at some point or another. Maybe even if you haven't been a parent, maybe you were given the charge of watching a niece or a nephew or a friend's child, and maybe you experienced that terror. I know uh, several years ago now, I was out of the country at this time of year. I was down in Ecuador serving, and my wife Lisa she decided to take our children to a fall festival that was going on at another local church where I knew the pastor. And uh, our children were younger, and she tried to keep everyone together, as, but she had to especially focus on keeping our little girls with her because they were, they were smaller than the others. And before very long, uh, you know, with her permission, the boys had moved on to other stations, and she lost track of them. And after a long while... John came walking back over and, and, you know, she's like, okay, where's Josiah? And nobody knew. 
And so she began frantically looking around. She had Grace watch the other children, and she began frantically looking for Josiah. She didn't find him. She notified the security guard that was there at the church, and he took her around to every station in the golf cart searching for our son. She had her phone out. She was showing pictures of him. Have you seen this boy? Pretty soon the pastor got involved, and he was now having to search the entire fall festival, and, and she was frantic. It was a terrifying moment. Even as I asked her to share the story with me again to refresh my memory, it made her have a panicked feeling just a few days ago sharing that. You know, we come this morning to, the, to this final narrative in Luke 2, and we must admit we, we have a lot of curious questions about the boyhood of Jesus. This is the only recorded story of the boyhood of Jesus that we have in all the Gospels. There are so many aspects of, of the life of Jesus that we're curious about, but we still, we, we still have those, those particular questions about his childhood. What, what was it like for Mary and Joseph to, to raise a child who never sinned even once? What would that be like? What was, it, what, what was Jesus like as a, as a childhood friend to other children? How did, how did Jesus' younger brothers and sisters feel about being raised in a home with a perfect older brother? Or when his family attended synagogue, was, was Jesus always the one kid who had to answer the rabbi's question? Questions like these are likely what led the writers of the false and Gnostic Gospels to make up stories about Jesus' childhood. There, there are many stories in false gospels and other books that were written that, that portray Jesus in his childhood in, in some very unbiblical ways. But as far as divinely inspired scripture, this story stands alone. And because we know that scripture is sufficient, we know we don't need any more information than this about the boyhood of Jesus. As John said at the end of his gospel, John 21, 25, now there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so God has given us enough. Now, as we explore this text this morning, we're going to see that Jesus was aware of his unique relationship to God from his boyhood. He knew he was God's own son and that he possessed a unique calling in his father's plan of redemption. And therefore, the entirety of his life, including his childhood, was part of him fulfilling all righteousness and becoming our perfect substitute sacrifice. That's what I want us to see and understand this morning. Now, as we get started, my structure today is a little bit different than normal. We're going to explore this narrative as a whole, not broken into parts, and then we're going to come back and discuss the applications that we glean from it. So let's just talk about, let's look at the whole narrative and talk about the boy Jesus staying behind in the temple. As Luke begins his account, he tells us that when they had done everything according to the law, the family returned to Nazareth in the region of Galilee. Luke does not include the story of the Magi the family's escape to Egypt, or Herod's slaughter in Bethlehem, as Matthew did, perhaps because he saw no need to repeat that part of the account. But when we get to verse 40, we find a key theme of this passage that is stated both at the beginning and at the end. Look at verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And now go down to verse 52. Because these are the bookends to the passage. 
Verse 52 says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now this raises the question for us right away, doesn't it? If Jesus was God incarnate, even at this age, how is it that he would grow in wisdom? Isn't God the source and sum of all wisdom and knowledge? Why would Jesus need to grow in this area if he was already fully God? Well, this is where we need to understand the doctrine of the hypostatic union or the union between Christ's two natures, his human nature and his divine nature. The Council of Chalcedon met in the mid-400s to address a, a dangerous heresy that had arisen regarding the person and nature of Christ. And from that came the Chalcedonian Statement on Christology, which is still the benchmark statement that we use today. Basically, that statement tells us that Jesus' human nature and divine nature were perfectly united in one person without being mixed or confused and without the properties of one nature in any way diminishing the properties of the other. So let me explain what that means. It means that in the incarnation, Jesus did not lay aside any of his divinity. That would be a heresy. Jesus is fully God, even as a boy, but he's also fully human. His humanity did not in any way diminish his divinity, and his divinity did not negate or diminish his humanity. It, that means his divinity did not negate or diminish his need to grow and mature and learn in his human nature. So even though Jesus in his divinity was omniscient and omnipotent, the baby Jesus still had to learn to crawl and then walk. He still had to learn how to talk and how to tie his sandals and how to read and how to relate to people in his culture. He had to learn how to do carpentry with his dad. He had to learn how to think critically and process his emotions. The reality of his divinity united with his virgin-born humanity kept him from sin. And under the direction of the Godhead, Jesus would exercise the power and knowledge of his divinity at different points throughout his earthly ministry. But in his humanity, Jesus did grow and learn and increase in wisdom, in favor with God and man. Now, Mary and Joseph, being devout Jews, they made the 60-plus mile journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem every year to observe the week-long Feast of Passover. Jewish practice was that a boy became a son of the commandments and a full member of the synagogue at age 13. At that time, his presence was required at all such observances. And so in order to help prepare boys for that, that coming of manhood, the Jewish Mishnah said that boys should be taken along to religious observances a year or two before their 13th birthday. So Jesus might have gone every year to Passover with his parents, or this might have been his first year. But they all went up to Jerusalem. They visited with friends and family as they celebrated the Passover and at the end of the week, they set out to make the journey back home. Verse 43 tells us, though, that Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem and his parents didn't know it. You see, families traveling such a distance, families that had very meager means, they would often travel in caravans for support and protection from bandits on the road, especially if the trip was going to take several days, as this one would. 
In the caravans, the women and the children would be at the front and the men with the older boys traveled at the back in order to protect the group because bandits most often attacked the stragglers in a large group. So as they departed from Jerusalem, Mary likely thought that since Jesus was now 12 years old, he was back with his father, back with the men. Joseph, likely, since he didn't see Jesus with him, likely thought that since Jesus wasn't there with the men, he was up with his mother. So they went a full day's journey. On foot, they went about 20 miles. And when it came time to camp for the night, they both got together and they realized Jesus was missing. They had that that frantic search among all their relatives and all their friends. Have you seen Jesus? Has anyone seen Jesus? And he was nowhere to be found. Well, they couldn't travel then at night, so they had to wake up and leave the next morning. One day was spent traveling away from Jerusalem. That second day was spent traveling back to Jerusalem. And then on the third day, that is when they found Jesus in the temple. Look at verse 46 sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard about him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, brothers and sisters, think about this with me because this is, this is beautiful and wondrous and amazing. Picture this with me. We have the incarnate Lord of heaven and earth sitting amongst the elite religious teachers of his time in the temple that was built for him, discussing the scriptures that were written by him. Isn't that amazing? We have the incarnate Lord sitting with the elite religious teachers of his time in the temple that was built for him, discussing the scriptures that were written by him. And those who listened were astonished. They were astonished because they'd never seen a 12-year-old boy demonstrate such an understanding of theology. Now, the question begs itself here. So Jesus, as he was talking with the teachers in the temple, was he speaking out of his divinity in that moment? We don't know for sure, but I think likely not. Or if, if Jesus had been speaking out of his divinity, I think it would present a picture of a 12-year-old boy instructing the religious leaders in the temple, right? That's, that's just... That's just an opinion. We don't know for sure. But even just speaking out of his humanity, think about this with me. Think of what a 12-year-old mind unfettered from depravity and sin could understand if he had been raised in a biblical household. Think about that. Because, brothers and sisters, our sin from our infancy it affects, it twists our ability to think and to rightly understand and to perceive the things of God. But Jesus had none of that sin holding him back. He had no sin nature that distorted his thinking, that kept him from understanding the truths that he had been raised with from his birth. And therefore, this, this boy, this 12-year-old boy could sit in the temple and discuss and, and bask in the truth of his father even in his humanity. Now we can imagine Joseph and Mary come up, coming upon the scene after three days of panic and worry. Upon seeing Jesus, they felt at the same time elation and frustration and anger. Now remember that Jesus was sinless. He was perfectly obedient. So they had likely never faced a situation where they felt like he had disobeyed them. This might be the first time 
And so upon finding him, you can imagine Joseph and Mary, they, they make their way in the temple. They see him in the distance, sitting amongst the teachers, having a, a great conversation. Everyone's astonished. And, and maybe there's a little, uh, should we interrupt? But no, Mother Mary's going to go right in, right? She walks right up to her son. She cannot hold back her words. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. The Greek here literally says that they experienced pain and anguish of heart as they searched for him. Now based on this, some have tried to say that Jesus did indeed sin against his parents by staying behind and causing them this distress. But I want you to think about this with me. Let's really think about this. I want to go back to the story, just our personal experience. You know, Josiah lost at the fall festival at this other church. And of course, you know, you see him sitting here today, so you know we found him, right? The way we finally found him is the, the pastor finally went over to the person who was controlling the sound system and they got on the loudspeaker and they made an announcement. And here comes Josiah just bounding along. He was in the bouncy house the whole time having a grand time. Just nobody could see him in there, right? Now, he had not disobeyed any of my wife's instructions. Josiah had not disobeyed any of his mother's instructions. She had simply lost sight of him when he went to play at a different station. And yes, Lisa was exasperated when she found him, as any mother would be. But Josiah hadn't sinned against her. He wasn't rebelling against her authority or intentionally trying to be away from her or disobeying her. And brothers and sisters, the same is true of Christ. Jesus, in his divine nature, he knew the future perfectly, and he could have foreseen this whole episode. But as part of his growing and learning process in his human nature, Jesus did not often draw upon those divine abilities, only when directed by the Godhead. So Jesus did not sin. And I do believe as his mother came to him, he truly felt compassion for his parents' distress. But he also took this occasion to remind them of his divine identity. Look at what Jesus says to them. Jesus said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now stop and think about this. These are the first recorded words of our Savior. And his statement here is the focus of the entire passage and the whole reason that the Spirit led Luke to include this narrative. Most directly, Jesus was saying that if Joseph and Mary would have paused and thought more thoroughly about the situation and their son, they would have been able to surmise that Jesus would be in the temple. That he would be in the safest, most sacred place in all Jerusalem. So that's, that's the most direct part of what Jesus says here, but more significantly than that, Jesus here was stating His place within the Godhead. God is referred to as Father at numerous places in the Old Testament. Even in a general sense, He is referred to as our Father by the nation of Israel. But nowhere in the Old Testament, not even from the mouth of Moses or David who, who had communion face to face with God, neither Moses nor David ever even dared to refer to God as my Father. And so this statement is unique to Jesus. In saying this to His mother, He was proclaiming His place as the Divine Son, the second member of the Trinity, and the one who most naturally belonged in the Father's presence. Think about this with me. As the perfect Son of God, 
His place was at the Father's right hand when He was in heaven and at His Father's house while He was on earth. That was His place. Now the theological significance of this is huge. The fact that Christ was self-aware as a boy points to Him not only knowing His identity, but also His purpose. You see, Jesus, being sinless and righteous, had to grow up in a world where He was surrounded by sin from His infancy. I mean, remember, Jesus was raised in Nazareth. Do you remember the reputation that Nazareth had? No good thing comes out of Nazareth. Nazareth was, was the other side of the tracks. Nazareth was a bad place, right? All Jesus had to do to be assaulted with the scenes of human depravity was step outside his front door as a boy. He could look around his own town and see the wreckage of sin caused by lying and theft and idolatry and selfishness. He could see the havoc that it wreaked on families and marriages and businesses and and even in the, the religious political sphere of his own hometown, as holy God, he would have grieved day after day over the wretchedness of that sin, and he would have been moved. He would have been moved by the love of his divine heart for his people to conquer and remove that burden of sin. What this means, brothers and sisters, is that even from childhood, Jesus' eyes were fixed on His Father and the cross. He grew up committing no sin, knowing that He would be made sin so that in Him we could be made righteous. Jesus' self-awareness of His divinity, of His place as the incarnate Son of God means this for us. Even His young life was part of Him fulfilling all righteousness for you, for me, for all who would trust in His name for salvation. And that is glorious, brothers and sisters. Even when we look upon Jesus as a boy, we realize He came for us. Now what do we learn from Christ staying behind in the temple? I want to just approach us and have us understand this from three different perspectives. And first I want to speak to the perspective of our young people, our, our children and young people. It's hard growing up in this world. It is. You have to deal with so many pressures and temptations. You, you have expectations from your, your parents, responsibilities with school, you have to navigate a minefield of relationships with your peers. And what do people think of me? You have to wrestle with your own securities. Insecurities, I mean. And on top of that, you worry about the state of the world that you are going to inherit from us. You have to fend off the appetites of your flesh all while figuring out if the beliefs that you have been raised with really are your beliefs. As you sit there, as you, one of our children, one of our young people, even as you listen to Pastor Sean you may secretly doubt the truth of what you've been taught in church your whole life. You might think that if Jesus is such a good and high and holy Savior, how could He ever relate to you? 
Well, if any of those things speak to your heart, please hear me say this. Jesus understands you because He has been where you are. God the Son became a human being with a mind and body just like yours. He had to make His way through the stages of life facing the same struggles you face. Jesus probably even had that clumsy stage just like you. Just like you, He might have been bullied when He was eight years old. Maybe He had to deal with annoying siblings as a teenager. Because of the absence of Joseph in the narrative later in His life, we also know that Jesus had to suffer the death of His father Joseph at some point in His young life. Jesus had to go through puberty. He had to go through that whole thing where His voice was changing. Jesus was misunderstood he was made to feel like he didn't belong. Jesus knew that his future also would be filled with rejection, betrayal, and suffering. And Jesus also had to battle temptation, just like you. In fact, Jesus had to battle temptation more than any other human being ever because his threshold for temptation was infinite. You know, you and I, sooner or later, the level of temptation will reach a point where we will give in. We will give in to the flesh, the world, the devil. But not Christ. With every temptation, He was tempted to the uttermost. And so He understands. That's why Hebrews 4.15 assures us that He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because He was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And as we see in our text, Jesus, he had to work through struggles with his parents too. Have you ever had to struggle with your parents? Jesus did too. Now, Mary and Joseph had the right to expect him to be where he was supposed to be. But in this case, Mary and Joseph made a wrong assumption about where he was supposed to be. And they got mad. They got mad at him. And with his response to them, by pointing this out to them, Jesus wasn't trying to be some sort of smart aleck here. But given his unique identity as the Son of God, he had a divine compulsion to be at the temple. So can you imagine being utterly pure and sinless, yet being raised by parents who struggle with sin? Can you imagine that? And so to all our children, young people, I want you to know Jesus understands but you know what's amazing? Look at verse 51 in your Bible. He still submitted himself to his parents. He loved them and he kept the fifth command to obey them. Jesus obeyed Mary and Joseph because it was his joy to honor and love his parents. But more than that, it was his joy to honor and love his heavenly father. You see, Jesus, His sight was so fixed on His heavenly Father that that made it easy for Him. It made it even a delight for Him to obey His earthly father and mother. Hebrews 5, 8 and 9 says, Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. You see, the Father 
He possesses all authority in creation, and he sent his son to live and die under human authority in order to be our perfect representative and atoning sacrifice. With his entire life, Jesus submitted. He submitted to the requirements of the law. He submitted to his parents in the temple as a 12-year-old. He submitted himself to civil authorities, both Jewish and Roman. He submitted in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. He said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And he submitted himself to the wrath of God on the cross. Jesus submitted to sinful parents in order to save his sinful parents. And Jesus also submitted to save you if you would trust in Him. Jesus knows you. He understands you. And with His submission, He has earned you a future and a hope. And so to all our young ones, I would say, turn and believe in Jesus. Apart from Him, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. But in Him, you are forgiven. In Him, you are lavished with His grace. Don't let the fact that you're still just so young that you're still a child or a youth, don't let that make you think you can delay. As you behold the story of the boy Jesus communing with His Father, go to Him, trust in Him, join that communion as you believe in Him and, and trust that what He did on the cross, He did for you. Know Him and be saved. Secondly, I want to speak to our parents. All of our parents, you know, we empathize greatly with Mary and Joseph, don't we? I mean, we can understand the worry and anxiety and we can even identify with their anger. But I want to take us back to what Jesus said to them. He said, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus' words mean that Mary and Joseph were capable of approaching this whole episode with a different mindset when the caravan stopped for the night and they discovered that Jesus was missing they were fearful and anxious and frantic what if he were hurt what if he were lost what if a Roman soldier had somehow taken offense at something he did and injured him I'm sure they imagined all sorts of horrible things happening to their child but if they had just set their fear aside and focused on what they knew to be true if they had remembered what had been revealed to them about their son's identity from the time of his birth, and if they had looked at their circumstances from the perspective of God's kingdom rather than worldly fear, they would have figured out that the only logical place in Jerusalem for Jesus to be was in the temple, in his father's house. They would have realized they had nothing to fear. Brothers and sisters, all of us, not just parents, but all of us, Jesus, throughout His ministry, was always offering such words of guidance and comfort to His followers, wasn't He? Jesus has always faithfully encouraged us not to be given over to anxiety and fear. In Matthew 6, 31-33, He said, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek eagerly after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
Mark 10, 29-31, or Matthew 10, sorry, 29-31, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Brothers and sisters, if we but look to Jesus, we see how our Savior viewed everything through a kingdom focus. And how He constantly invited us as His followers, us as His disciples, us as His children to lay aside our fear and to look at things from the perspective of the kingdom as He did. And that's what we need to do, all of us. But even in our parenting, right? Having a perspective defined by the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of self is what we need as parents. You see, when when I'm worried most about my kingdom, that's when I'm most likely to be angry with my children, especially even for things that aren't sin. How often do we as parents get angry with our children for things that aren't sin, that it's just childish? Hey, you better stop making all that noise in the other room. The Bible doesn't tell us it's sinful to make noise. It also helps us to realize when Christ's kingdom is my focus, then I'm in a place to realize that His plan for my children may be different than my plan for my children. Did you ever stop to think of that? What happened with Jesus? That wasn't Mary and Joseph's plan, but it was God's plan. And sometimes, we as parents need to realize that God has plans for our children that may not be our plan. And and I know we spend our lives protecting our children and wanting them to have healthy and comfortable and prosperous lives and we do everything we can to try to set them up for success. But God may have other plans. You know, one of of the, the two main things stopping young people from going to the mission field today are number one, just finances, just debt or not enough money to finance the mission. But you know, the second greatest thing stopping young people from going to the four corners of the globe today is parents. Because over and over again, even young men and women in Christ who are called of God to go to the nations, they have godly, faithful parents telling them, no, don't go risk your life for this. No, don't go into a place where I'll be scared for my grandchildren to be raised. Brothers and sisters, that's not a kingdom parenting focus. When our hearts are resting in Christ, when we embrace the kingdom focus that Christ died to secure for us, that is when we can be free from anxiety and worry and control. That's when we can rest in knowing that Jesus causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him. That's when we can be saved as parents from tying our identity to how well our kids are doing. You know, so much, so often we put so much pressure on our kids to, to behave right and to do the right thing and to interact with their peers in the right way and, and pursue the right things because we think that'll give me validity in the eyes of the world and say, yes, you were a good parent. And when our child blows it, in our minds and hearts, we so often make it about us. We're putting so much pressure on them to perform for our glory rather than 
Christ's glory. As parents even, we need to understand that Christ is the only one who can bear the weight of being our source of identity. Christ is the only one who can bear the weight of being our source of significance and peace and comfort. And Christ invites you even now, struggling parent, to rest in Him. To remember that you are not alone in your parenting, even if you are one of our precious single parents. You are not alone in parenting. Christ is also at work in your life and in the life of your child. Rest in His grace. Finally, to the church, I would just say let us think here about Jesus' delight in being in the temple, in His Father's house, listening to Scripture and exchanging questions about theology. We see later in the Gospels that one of His motives for cleansing the temple was that He had such a holy zeal for the house of the Lord. Now we, we want to ask at this point, so was God's presence only localized to the temple? Could Jesus not commune with God, His Father, anywhere else but here? Well, of course not. Later in the Gospels, we see Jesus going aside to pray and spend time with His Father in all sorts of different places. So why the focus on the temple? Why do we have here this focus on being in His Father's house? Well, because that was the center point of the worship of God's people. Jesus delighted in being in the assembly of the faithful. It was His joy to do His Father's will and to fellowship with Him in His Father's place in the midst of the people that were seeking Him. Jesus delighted in this. John 5.30, He said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And so what is true of Christ, he delighted. His food was to do his Father's will. If we are in Christ, then that is the reality he's establishing for us too. Matthew 12, 50, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. In 1 John 1, 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus. In Christ, we have been brought into fellowship with Him and with others through Him. And in that fellowship with Christ and one another, we too love to come to the assembly of the saints. We see this in the early church, Acts 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And awe came upon, uh, came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Brothers and sisters of the church, if we are in Christ, then we will delight in being among His people as Jesus did. Again, He died to save us, to secure that place and that heart for us. You know, we're just at the end of Luke 2 and we've already discussed at many points how Jesus identifies with us and understands us. In His humanity, He knew what it was to be hungry and tired and, and thirsty. He knew what it was to be misunderstood by His family as well as by His own disciples Jesus knew what it was to be so busy and exhausted by the demands of his calling that he could literally sleep through a deadly storm in a boat. He knew the loneliness of singleness 
He knew the challenge of training His spiritual children. And Jesus knew the heartache of being wed to a worldly people. He knew what it was to live under a very oppressive government regime and to be hated and betrayed by His own people. But you know what? Even later in His life, not even the death threats of the religious leaders could keep Jesus from coming and ministering in the temple. Nothing could thwart His love and commitment to glorify His Father and redeem His people. And so, brothers and sisters, let us look to Christ who is the one who goes before us as our perfect older brother, our Savior, our Helper. I would say specifically during this time, you know, this season of COVID-19 is weird. It's strange. It's been hard. And my prayer all along since this first fell upon us in March has been that God would use this pandemic in the church to separate the wheat from the tares. That He would come into the church and use it to separate the wheat from the tares. And even beyond that, that He would cause those who are truly His to cherish all over again the blessing of the assembly. Having to be separated from the assembly, for us as Christians, I hope that would have ignited within us a new love for the assembly. A realization of all the ways we have taken it for granted before, but now we have that gift back. And yes, it's still a strange and a weird time. I know that there are many not able to be among us because you still have real and serious health concerns. And we support you being in quarantine. But I would just ask us, maybe there are some who don't have real health concerns who are perhaps just using this pandemic as a way to be absent from the body. And, and listen, I'm going to go to Medlin. I'm sorry, I can't help it. I hate wearing a mask in worship. I hate it. It stinks. But not even a mask should keep us from fellowshipping with our body. I mean, don't you have to wear a mask for an hour while you grocery shop? Don't you have to wear a mask for an hour when you visit your doctor? Is it really too hard to wear a mask to be among the people of God on the Lord's day? To worship in the midst of the assembly? To delight in the Lord? I just ask you that question and I ask you to search your own conscience. More than that, I just ask you to look to Christ. Christ who is our everything. Who is our sufficient Savior. Christ who died so that even when we do fall short, even when we make selfish or poor choices, we are covered in His righteousness. We are justified by His grace. Our right standing with God is something we never need to fear losing. And by His grace and strength, He will give us hearts that yield to Him and delight in Him, even through adversity. Look to Jesus, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Look to Jesus, love Him, and out of that love for Him, obey. Let us pray. Father, may our eyes be fixed on You. And may You glorify Yourself in our midst even as we rejoice over this picture into Your boyhood. 
as we see so clearly your heart of love for your Father and your heart of love for us. Like Mary, Lord, may we depart this narrative treasuring these things in our heart. In your name we pray. Amen.